And remember, old school leadership was all about, you know, I've got a thumb, get under it, right? And so certainty, projecting certainty was actually a tool used in, in, in that type of leadership style. But now our world is kind of evolving where more people have more voice, uh, more people are, are, are talking with each other and sharing experiences and people are leaving jobs after five years on average or three years on average, depending on the age. And so that leadership style doesn't work anymore. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. So many managers, me included, have WTF moments. We give someone instructions as to what we want them to do. And then through some sort of ninja mental gymnastics, they manage to do something completely different than what we were expecting. What were they thinking? Are they really that stupid? My guest today says this behavior on both the part of the manager and the employee is a common part of our wiring as humans. But he says there is a cure for what we might call stupidity. Eric and Bailey is the best-selling author of The Cure for Stupidity, Using Brain Science to Explain Irrational Behavior, and he's president of Bailey Strategic Innovation Group, one of the fastest-growing communication consulting firms in the U.S. Honored as a Diversity Leader of the Year, Eric is the creator of The Principles of Human Understanding, a leadership and communication methodology based in brain science and psychology. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Eric. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, so help me understand why are they so stupid? <laughs> well, that's that's the interesting thing is that we are very quick to judge people as stupid. And and you know, interestingly, you know, when you mentioned, you know, I gave very clear instructions and they did something completely different. I, I equate that to giving someone directions to your house. Like you've driven it a million times, you've thought about it a million times. It is so perfectly clear. But there's often some nuance that you don't ever communicate out to them. And so when someone's trying to make it to your house, they you say turn right at the McDonald's. You meant the second McDonald's on the right and then turn right. And they turn end up totally lost. And a lot of times the way in which we communicate with people leaves out some of that nuance or what I, what I call that context, that meaning that we know so clearly. And if they don't have it, it's actually really difficult for them to see it our way. So... So it's it's not just their fault. It's mostly their <laughs> fault, but some of it's me. Yes, of course. Okay. And I think one of the things is, is when we judge it as something like stupid, right? You know, so you said the WTF, WTF moments. Like we judge these things as stupid. And so then someone has to be like, it's a character trait, right? That they, they are a stupid person. And what's typically happening is they're just running through a different set of, of steps to get to where they ended up that you would have. And so we're like, well, if you didn't do the way I would have done it, you're clearly an idiot. Uh, and we do this all the time. And we're judging drivers as stupid. We're judging our employees as stupid. We're judging our family members. Our, like all this is happening. And it's not really interesting you say whose fault is it. It's not really anyone's fault per se. It's actually just kind of a natural, predictable pathway that happens when we communicate with each other. 
And that's interesting because I was just thinking about this as, as I was driving the other day, uh, somebody, you know, cuts you off and I'm, you know, and I'm just like everybody else. I have that immediate, what's your problem and all of that. But I was driving in a part of uh, town that I wasn't as familiar with, a part of, of, of another city that I wasn't familiar with. And I ended up in the wrong lane and had to kind of cut over quickly before I, and and I didn't notice that there was somebody, they weren't right on my tail, but and I wasn't, and they weren't at real risk, but they didn't like that behavior. And they zoomed up past me and gave me a one of one of these fingers and not that one. And so, um, and so I thought, well, what's his problem? It was just a mistake. And then I kind of, then I was kind of convicted that, you know, I, I'm not that uh, exuberant in my, you know, in my reaction to people when they're driving, but I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a perception, I guess I'm, and I'm making my way through the book and I've got a lot of notes, but you know, one of the things you point out early is there's a difference between perception and reality. Talk about that because I think that makes, that kind of frames a lot of this conversation. Absolutely. Per- perception versus reality is one of the principles of human understanding. And it's this idea, we have this, this thing that we've hear, heard and said so often, that it's, it's kind of cliche, perception equals reality. And while, while there is some kind of poetic truth to that, uh, and we would talk about that in a second, it's really, it's not true. Like reality is the measurable real things that are there. So even in talking about a conversation with somebody like, oh, you're, you're so rude. That's not reality. The reality is you said this thing. My perception or interpretation is you said it with a tone that made me think and I inferred and that's perception. And so they're actually, perception does not equal reality. And and I love talking about this with with groups of people in in a large conference room because there's always somebody who feels cold in a conference room and there's always always somebody who feels warm in a conference room. And what's the reality, right? It it doesn't matter. Reality literally doesn't matter because if you perceive it as cold, you're going to put your hands in your armpits. If you perceive it as warm, you're going to fan yourself off. And when you think about that in every conversation, what you perceive is, is the basis of your reaction or your behaviors. And so it's not that perception equals reality. It's actually, it's perception is more important than reality. And so what I always say is that what you say or what you do matters less than what they hear or what they feel. And, and when you really understand that, I, I call that the foundation of communication, because if you really understand that, instead of going to someone and saying, why did you hear me wrong? Or how could you possibly have heard it that way? Instead, what we can do is, as leaders, especially HR leaders, is we can say, oh, what about the words I said made you think this is what I meant? And we can get curious and we can start learning about how the person we're communicating with needs to be communicated with. And honestly, this is the most, this is why most people hate management positions. Like they love being a manager. I love the title, but they hate managing people. And they hate managing people because as many people as you have to manage, there are that many ways you must communicate to them, even if you're communicating the same message. And that's, that's interesting because I see that even outside of the, the workplace in our national dialogue. I keep hearing that people say, uh, my facts won't yield to your feelings or something like that. And, and we're talking past us. There's, there's a, in fact, there's an organization called Braver Angels that is designed to bring people from you know various uh, backgrounds together to to have a reasonable you know respectful conversation, and a lot of it 
those conversations are about, this is what I hear when somebody says this, or, and we've got different backgrounds. And, and it's the same thing when we walk in the workplace, right? Um, you know, I, you know, I grew up kind of, you know, in Texas, pew, pew, but, you know, as a, as a white kid who really wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, in, compared to my school peers, wasn't particularly well, you know, wealthy or anything like that, but, but had certainly a lot of opportunities other people didn't have. And, and so when I'm in the broader context of, you know, the, the, the workforce, what I'm bringing in, is going to be different. And what are my expectations of how people are treated or what their skills or experience are going to be, they're going to vary. And so, so we've got to get into that, getting to the other person's mind, seeking first to be understood. I guess that's the Covey thing, right? Uh, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, there's there's some uh, I don't remember who said it, but a while ago, a mentor shared a quote with me He said, you cannot reason a person out of a position they never reasoned themselves into. And I think a lot about that with the with the political discourse we're dealing with right now is is all of our emotions are driving this thing forward. And then what we what our brains love to do is also come in with facts and data to back up why we feel the way we do. But it wasn't the facts making us feel, it's the facts reinforce what we feel. And so when, when we engage with someone like, oh, well, let me show you why your facts are wrong. And they're like, I don't care, <laughs> you know? And so, so where, where, there's, where there's opportunity, just like you said, if we can give people the experience of being understood, the defense reaction goes down, the shoulders relax, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm so not used to being understood that I really want to engage in more conversation with you. And that's the place we want to get to. If we can engage with people in dialogue where they're open, like that's that's how we start moving things forward. So we're not saying you have to, that people's feelings rule the ultimate outcome or the decisions we make. What we're saying is that rationality matters, but you have to understand where the other person's at in order to engage in, in to get to the point where you can both agree on the, the terms, the definitions, the the groundwork of whatever your rational decisions are going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. So so the emotions are are the first filter. And so when you're engaging with somebody, so what I what I'm not advocating is I'm not advocating that you need to change your opinions or change your deeply held philosophy. I'm not a- advocating for that. But what I am saying is that oftentimes when we get in these kind of debates or dialogues or discussions like this, the first filter that someone needs is the emotional filter. And we need to validate someone's emotions, validate someone's previous experiences, validate their context to kind of unwrap what's really going on inside. And then we can start getting into some of the data, the details and facts. But oftentimes that emotional first layer we don't ever acknowledge it and we just go straight to the facts and people are like, nope, I don't want to talk to you about that. You're trying to tell me I'm an idiot, right? And this, this is what we do. We jump straight to, you're stupid, you're an idiot. And and when we do that, defenses come up, emotions get even stronger, and then it's even more difficult to engage with someone. Uh, I was, I, was um, I, I say all the time I'm a recovering HR person, and one of my most difficult employee challenges was a manager came up to me and said, okay, I've got an employee who stinks. And I'm like, oh, we'll just, you know, give them training and coaching. Like, no, no, no. They actually smell horrible. They stink. Been there. Yeah. Right? And and the manager's like, well, what are you going to do about it? And I'm like, that's your, you need to address this. And like, I don't, I'm not doing it. I'll send them to a different department. 
And this is what people do is they're so they don't they're ill-equipped to engage in the emotional stuff because they're so worried about some drastic explosion. But really, you just talk to this person. Hey, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but people are commenting that you smell a little bit and they'll be embarrassed. Sure. But maybe it's one of those situations where they didn't know. You know, I mean, right. think have you ever walked out of a, a bathroom with toilet paper stuck on your shoe or broccoli or in your worse. teeth? And, yeah. Or yeah, right. <laughs> and 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 someone eventually tells you, like the first thing you say is, "Thank you," and then and then you think about all the other people who didn't tell you, right? But mm-hmm. like, if we can start to understand that there's emotion all mixed in with this, and we can address that and make people feel understood, all of this is so much easier. So you've built this framework, the principles of human understanding. We'll talk about the pieces of that, but what's the the big framework? What's the objective and what does it really help us unravel? Yeah, so the, the main the main point, so so all of the principles, there's 22 principles and they're all based in some realm of brain science. So brain science isn't actually a study, uh, but it's kind of a blanket term that covers psychology and anthropology and linguistics and all these different things, neuroscience. And so all of these principles have to do with understanding how we as humans actually operate when it comes to engaging with each other. So there's a lot of linguistics. There's a lot of uh, understanding, you know, how we engage in communication. There's a lot of how our brains are actually wired and when we get elevated in certain areas, uh, how we perceive things. And so the principles of human understanding, people ask me all the time, like, who is this designed for? I'm like, it's designed for anyone who's a human, right? Because it's universal. Like you can apply this in in uh, areas of diversity training, sure, which I'm doing a lot of that right now. You can apply this in areas of strategic planning. Uh, you can apply this in areas of mediation or leadership training or any ask. Even interestingly, a lot of people will come up to me after after seeing a session, maybe seeing me again or email me later. They say, you saved my marriage. And I'm like, that's not what I do, but tell me more. And like, oh, that thing you were talking about, not listening to people and debating and fighting, I realized that one of the principles is called the fight to be right. And one of the things I realized is when I'm with my spouse, I'm fighting to be right all the time. And for the first time, like I heard myself in it and I stopped it and I listened for the first time to my spouse. And I was like, that's amazing, right? And so all these things, they're, they're all about helping two humans relate to each other in a deeper way. That's interesting. My uh, One of my best friends is a noted criminal defense attorney here in Texas, and he's always challenging me with the question, do you want to be right or do you want to get what you want? Mm. And, you know, like in a marriage, what I really want, happy wife, happy life. That's yeah. what that's what yeah. I really want. And and does it how important is it to even be right? Have her agree with me that this is the case or this is as long as we get to an outcome that works for both of us and we can move on down the road. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the kind of corollary to that is, you know, what do you truly want? And then, you know, we work through people, we kind of walk them through like, what do you truly want? And then the follow-up question, which is really, really difficult is if that's what you truly wanted, how would you behave? Which, which becomes really instructional thing, because if I'm not behaving that way, either I need to change my behavior to get what I truly want, or that's not what I truly want. And that's a really interesting kind of self-reflection moment for people because they're like, oh, yeah, I want, you know, I want, uh, 
in, in, in the work world, I want my employees to be, to feel empowered. Okay. How would you behave if you wanted your employees to be empowered? Would you be micromanaging them? Probably not. And people are like, oh, oh, maybe what I truly want is I want to feel powerful, right? And that's like, wow. Once people can see that, then now they can start thinking about and changing behaviors. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 20 and enter the keyword Bailey. That's B-A-I-L-E-Y. On December 2nd, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Seven Steps to Making Bulletproof Hiring Decisions. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after December 2nd, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit for free. And now back to my conversation with Eric Bailey. So, and you said there's 22 of those those principles, I think, that, that you've ca- carved into four bigger categories. And the first is the observation trap. Uh, that was really interesting. Talk to, talk to us about just that general category. What's the observation trap and what are some ways for getting out of it? Yeah, so so they're kind of organized into it's. I don't know if, you, if you're a military person or you know much about the Air Force or uh, or Marines as well, but there's this concept called the OODA loop, O O D A, and it's what a fighter pilot does to to survive. So you uh, you observe, you orient, you decide, and you act, and it's a loop because once you act, you've changed the environment around you. So you have to reobserve what's going on, reorient yourself to it. Uh, I'm a I'm an honorary commander with uh, Luke Air Force Base with the 63rd Fighter Squadron. And so I got I get to sit with fighter pilots all the time and talk with them. Uh, one of my mentors is a, a, a one of the former generals of Luke Air Force Base. And they're saying if you're going 750 miles an hour and someone else is going 750 miles an hour at you, like you have to think quickly. And so you do this OODA loop process. And so the first the first group of principles is actually called the observation principles. And so what you want to do is you want to be observing the world around you. And all of these principles are actually designed to highlight to you, the reader, all the different ways that our body will kind of mess up our observation. They can kind of trap us in the, the path of observation and believe that what we're seeing right now at this moment is the way the world is forever. And, and when we get trapped in these observation trap principles, what happens is when someone sees the world differently than we do, our first reaction is, you're an idiot. There's something wrong with you, right? And so the, these principles are all really helping us to see how we see and the impacts of that. So observation is just seeing what's going on around us without reacting, just taking it in and saying, okay, this is what it really is. It's and, and without putting any uh, any images or ideas about who this person is or what this means about who this person is and things like that. Just kind of kind of being a stoic, right? Just accepting accepting this is the reality I'm faced with, right? Now. And, and also kind of giving us insight that uh, about how hard that is to do, 
right? Because our natural reaction is to to look at something and judge it. Our natural reaction is look at something and assign it, right? We the whole perception versus reality thing lives in that first the first grouping, and we believe that our perceptions of things are the way the world actually is. One the, the first principle we actually teach in the book is called the illusion of certainty. And it's our brain's propensity to project certainty into the world when we are uncertain, especially when we are uncertain. And this this plays out time and time and time again. If you think about when uh, you know digging your heels into a conversation, that's because our brains want to project that we're certain. We know what I've seen is the way it is. You're clearly wrong. And, and when we go through that, the other person is experiencing the illusion of certainty as well, but from their own point of view. And they think that we're idiots, right? And it's, it's really interesting when you start to realize how much weight we put in our own observations in expectations of what the world actually is. It seems like that certainty, though, is like, at least for old school leadership training, that was like one of the first things, right? Always act with certainty, always act with, you know, uh, uncompromisingly. Uh, And I think what you're saying is that's probably not the best way to, you know, that's not the first tile or the first step to take. Yeah, I mean, again, it's what do you truly want? And remember, old school leadership was all about, you know, I've got a thumb, get under it. Right. And so certainty, projecting certainty was actually a tool used in, in, in that type of leadership style. But now our world is kind of evolving where more people have more voice, uh, more people are, are, are talking with each other and sharing experiences and people are leaving jobs after five years on average or three years on average, depending on the age. And so that leadership style doesn't work anymore. And so here we are with this natural tendency to project certainty or give the answer, even if I don't know it. Uh, my, my mom calls that going to MSU, making sh- stuff up. And we, we do it all the time. And and this idea that that our certainty is the way the world actually is, is really detrimental to actually that building of relationships and, and, and understanding each other. So we get to that point and then we orient. Uh, talk about the orientation trap and and how do we how do we get out of the trap and how do we use those tools? Yeah. So when we start to orient to the world, it's, it's, this is, it's one of the pivotal things. And I think it's honestly one of the most important, but what we do is we observe the world around us and we need to figure out where we are pointing in that, in that space. And so a lot of it has to do with our understanding of the way the world actually is, which is built on our past experiences. Uh, the orientation trap principles are instead of looking at it, I am, I am here. I will always be here. What we're looking at is now we can see the complete world. Maybe I'm actually here and, and looking that, oh, is this where I want to be? Do I want to reorient myself? Do I want to, to shift back in this direction given all of this new context? And so it's a, it's a little abstract without kind of reading into the book, but the whole point of the orientation trap principles is to give us the ability to reorient ourselves with the world around us, with the people around us, so that we can make better decisions. And that's what comes comes in the later sections. So to get the right perspective about how we're relating to people, how they're perceiving us, how we're perceiving them, mm-hmm. uh, we've got, okay, and and how they're perceiving this, even the circumstances around it. And we see that in performance management all the time, that, that you've got an employee who's who thinks they're doing exactly what you want them to do, they're not quite there. 
maybe they, they're, they're benchmarking their behavior and performance against other employees. And, you know, maybe you've got a different expectation for this employee in this role. And, and so what's, you know, and so getting on the same page is kind of part of that orientation process. I Absolutely. Guess. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the book, it kind of follows through this, this one situation that we've all seen at work at some point, there's an argument over the coffee maker, the person who comes in early to the, to the, to work, you know, he's always the one to make the coffee in the morning. And then many times he comes in and the coffee pot is dirty and he's like, Hey, leaves this sign up. Hey, don't be an animal. You people just clean it up when you're done or whatever. Your mother doesn't work here. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the person who's late sees the note and is like, what, what are you talking about? We still need coffee later. You can't wash the coffee pot at noon. We're still here till eight o'clock at night. And, and it's just two people, two completely different experiences of life in the same physical space, right? But they just don't overlap that much. And this whole thing about how what I see, the world in which I see is the way it is without exception. And the other person is saying the exact same thing. And as we slowly start to open up to the possibility, and that's the whole thing is the possibility. Like what would the world look like if we were more curious to other people's perspectives? Well, the world look like, you know, and so if we start to do this, we can start to see, oh, this is why I'm reacting so strongly. It's not because of what you said. It's because of all of this other stuff that's kind of I'm carrying in my my proverbial cosmic backpack. Right. And as you start to understand those things, now we can start to engage each other differently. So observation, orientation, then the decision trap. So, yes. So obviously this is this is kind of where we decide to take action. So what is, what's the decision trap and, and how does observation orientation affect the decisions we make? Yeah. So, so in the context of the OODA, O-O-D-A, uh, so what you want to do, is you want to observe the world, orient yourself to it, and then decide what to do. Now, what we typically don't do is, is in many cases, we refuse to decide what to do because we kind of get caught in this trap of debating and fighting and struggling and, complaining. Uh, a lot of people, especially in, in the workplace, workplace right now, is we spend a lot of time complaining about our workplace. And so what's missing there is making a decision, doing something. And when we're, when we're absent that decision, making a choice, um, oftentimes we're, we're um, uh, just paralyzed by fear. Uh, uh, and this is actually one thing that we see a lot of times, people just, I'm so worried to fail that I'm not even going to try. And so they kind of get stuck in indecision. And the funny thing, the, 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 the major gift that I want to give to the audience is, is you have probably failed before, right? And you probably failed big before. And when you failed, you made it here. Like no matter what happened, like you failed and still you made it to this point. So you obviously survived and whatever decision you're refusing to make or, or or not willing to make right now because of fear you're for you're going to fail you're you may fail and if you do fail you're going to keep moving forward right and and that's one thing i think we get stuck in these decision traps like um i want to i've got this great idea that's really going to help employee morale but it might be a little expensive and i got to go talk to the cfo about it i'm really nervous i don't want to do it and so you end up not sharing that brilliant idea or I'm worried that I'm going to make a mistake or someone's going to make fun of me or by pr producing some out of the box idea, which may save the company a million dollars over the next two years. But I saw someone get made fun of last time they produced an idea and I don't want to do that. Right. So we're letting fear stop us from making that decision and kind of getting to that action. And 
when we get trapped in that, we just end up just sitting in our lives, right? And and when people people sometimes will sit in their lives for for decades because they're unwilling to kind of make a decision. And that breeds bitterness, uh, unhappiness. That uh, the people I know who are of my generation who are truly unhappy in their lives. Uh, and I've got a bias towards action. And so that's probably, you know, uh, my bitterness is always just, you know, something else, but the, you know, but I've, I know, you know, a few people and, you know, who are really unhappy in their lives and almost all of it is because they weren't willing to make those, take, you know, they knew what they wanted to do, but they wouldn't take the risk. They didn't have the courage, whatever the circumstance were, they weren't willing to, to take those actions that may have involved sacrifice and uncertainty. Uh, you know, David Meister says uh, in uh, his book, Strategy and the Fat Smoker, that the reason we won't make the big changes in our lives is because those the benefits are in the future, but the pain and the discomfort are right now and the risk is right now. And maybe we don't want to do that uh, now. And, you know, it's just like the fat smoker won't quit smoking or eat less. You know, he, he fully intends to, but it's really hard right now and he can't really envision what it would be like in the future. So, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot. So, so in my previous work, I did a lot of international change management with Cotter International, uh, a firm based in Boston. And, um, it was all about change management and understanding how change, uh, uh works, f- truly works like successful change really works. And, and since I started my own firm doing all my, cause I'm a geek for brain science, all, all of my research on brain science, you see why that happens. There's actually uh, a bias that we have called status quo bias. And essentially, it's it's this idea that we've seen things happen before, and it's actually very comfortable. Because now, if you can predict what's going to happen in the future, your brain doesn't have to work as hard. And so what we want to do is we want to put ourselves in environments where the future is predictable. And so we will stay with the way it has always been because it's easier. And our brain loves that, absolutely loves that. And so when you start to think about introducing a change, the first reaction people have is, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you trying to say there's something wrong with me? There's something wrong with the way I've done it? And people get really like, extra excited about it and they try to sabotage it or they try to whatever. And all it all has to do with this status quo bias. And you see people, oh, that's the way we've always done it. Or we tried that before and it failed or all of these excuses to not try something new or unique. And when we're in that situation, it's really hard, right? It's, it's again, deals with the emotional and we have to kind of ease that emotional fear, worry, stress, and then have the discussion about it. So we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one flip. I'm going to flip the table a little bit. Okay. So we recognize we just naturally put people in categories and you call them silos in the book, I think. And uh, um, what, rather than, you know, certainly we need to be aware when we're doing that, but when somebody puts you in a silo or puts when I, somebody puts me in a silo, how should what's an appropriate response on my part to get a constructive outcome? If somebody is assuming, uh, you know, you, you use the example of the, uh, you know, the way you dress always very professionally. You wear the, uh, you know, a shirt. You often have a vest on. And, and some people sometimes mistake you as a porter or a bellman or something like that. 
how do you respond in those circumstances? You just punch them or do you, what do you, you know, what do you do? <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't punch them. Uh, but it is, if you punch them like this, if you punch them like this, it's not gonna do any good and they're going to beat you up. So don't, don't hit like <laughs> don't I do hit. That. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, so, so interesting. Um, there, there are kind of two, two layers of responses and it kind of depends on how you're feeling at the moment. One is more, the word, the word on the tip of my tongue is aggressive, but I don't mean aggressive. One is more um, uh, kind of bold, bold. One is more bold as one is more passive. Uh, and it kind of depends on, you know, your personality, your style, how you're feeling, what's your relationship with that person. So um, in a more bold style, a great powerful question that my colleague Nicole Lance just shared with me a couple of weeks ago um, is you can say, what makes you feel so comfortable to think this about me, ask me that, assume this of me, right? And what it does, it puts puts them in a place of thinking about their preconceived notions. Like what did embolden them to do that? And it's a tough place to be. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. To ask that question is a very bold question. But what it does is makes it makes people think about their motivations, which we often don't think of our motivations. Okay. The other, the other thing that I do, and this is a position that I've been in many, many, many times is I just prove them wrong through action. So, um, in the situation you, you experienced or explained earlier, uh, I was in uh, new England and I was the keynote speaker for this, this conference. And I was the only black person in the room. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very, you know, people person. I love engaging with people. My my first live keynote in a while, in a year and a half, really excited. So I'm out there, I'm shaking hands with people and meeting people. Um, and you know, three people actually assumed that I was an employee of, of the venue. And I mean, I'm, I have my lanyard, like my conference lanyard on that says keynote speaker on it. And, and you know, I, I, I've, I've experienced this before where just because I'm black, people will assume that I'm service class and then, you know, oh, you're dressed nice. So you must be a ballet or you must be a whatever. And, and so I, interestingly, sometimes like, so in the situation, someone asked me where the restroom was, someone asked me to get them a, a glass of water. Someone asked me what the Wi-Fi password was. So the three situations. And uh, if I would have known where the water was, I would have gotten it for her. I just didn't know. Um, and with, I didn't know the Wi-Fi password. I did know where the restroom was. So I told the woman where the restroom was. Uh, but then, you know, 15 minutes later, they announced me, I'm up on stage and I'm, and I'm delivering, I'm doing my work. And those three people among everyone else came up to me afterwards and said, thank you so much. That was life-changing and I'm sorry. And, and we actually engaged in these really cool conversations about, okay, so when you, when you saw me, do you, do you know why you assumed that I was an employee? And they're like, uh, uh, and kind of hemming and hawing around it. And what I, what I was able to do in that situation was give them that self-awareness that they never would have allowed themselves to experience in the first place. Now, just to be clear, that was a, those were incredibly uncomfortable situations for me. Right, because here I am, you know, in this this kind of position, uh, this elevated position, keynote speaker, right? And and then to like right before I go on, people are like, "Hey, can you grab my bags?" Right? It's 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 a weird emotional thing, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, go through that. Women go through that a lot. Black people go through it a lot. Mexican people go through that a lot. Indian people go through that a lot. A lot of people go through that experience, and 
it's hard to communicate how to do that. But here's here's my here's my point of diversion. I could have said they are stupid, they are idiots, they are racist, labeling all these character traits, right? Which is what I teach people not to do in my book. Instead, what I did is said, oh, I have some clarity, some distinction they don't have. I have some insights that they don't have. I have an opportunity to give them those insights. And I happen to be in a pretty privileged place where I have the space and, and the knowledge to do, and the patience, right, to do that, right? And so it's, it's really interesting, uh, you know, what do you do when someone kind of puts you in those silos? What I do is I'm, and I'm patient. I try my darndest to find their humanity and then try to move forward through dialogue. So you're, whether whether it's a direct confrontation, you know, like you said, that's not the right word, bold, maybe, you mm-hmm. know, conversation around it, or you just are helpful and let them figure it out on themselves, uh, you're graceful. I think that's kind of the, and I think that's something that we could use a lot more of. Uh, so, but that is all the time we have. We could use more time too. Uh, it's, but that's all the time we have today. The book is The Cure for Stupidity. And I, there'll be a link to Eric's website in the show notes and on goodmorninghr.com. Thank you, Eric, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact, contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer and Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Katie Bautista, keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.